Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fund Caliber. This week, we're discussing abnormal markets, overlooked opportunities, and unloved European companies. I'm Ryan Light for Amanoff, and today I'm joined by Ben Leyland, the elite rated manager of the J.R. Hambro Global Opportunities Fund. Ben, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Um, your recent commentary says that you don't believe that markets have been normal for a while, not just since COVID uh, a couple of years ago, but since sort of 2017 or even the great financial crisis in 2008. Can you sort of elaborate on this statement, please? Yeah, I, I think there are two important points to make here. Um, the first is is really the degree to which financial and equity markets have been influenced supported, manipulated by central banks and very loose monetary policy and how long that's been in place for. Um, so we mean both in terms of interest rates being held below the level of inflation, which has been pretty consistent since the global financial crisis in 2008. Um, and then on top of that, in terms of more unconventional tools like quantitative easing, um, yeah, having such an amount of excess liquidity in the system uh, must have had all sorts of distorting effects, both on the real world and also the financial world. Uh, and to have it there for so long means that a lot of investors have forgotten what it's like to invest when it isn't there. You know, people have quite short memories and anything before the last five years, let alone 10 years, is regarded as ancient history and you know, not necessarily relevant. Um, uh, and we think that's incorrect. Uh, I think the second point is more about investor psychology in a period of equity market volatility. Um, because equity markets typically go up over the long term, it's common to, for people to see periods of volatility as kind of aberrations, abnormal interruptions in this longer term, quote, normal path of you know, steadily rising equity markets. And so whenever we're in a period of volatility, as we are now, people look back to whatever preceded that volatile period and assume that that was some sort of normal baseline. Um, and you can see it how people talk, you know, people, journalists, for example, talk about um, you know, how far things have fallen from their peak, as if the peak is some sort of normal level from which we, sh which we should use as a reference point. Uh, and, and ultimately, we just think that's a dangerous uh, assumption. The world doesn't kind of oscillate from you know, normal to volatile back to normal again. And we don't go back to the old normal. We tend to transition towards a new normal. Uh, and that was a phrase that was used an awful lot in, in the post-global financial crisis era. But I think it's more relevant to understand you know, how the world evolves and changes. And we never go back to the old um, set of circumstances. We always move into a new um, regime. Um, and certainly now, given how significant and wide-ranging the changes that we're all seeing and observing are, yeah, investors and governments and companies are having to operate in a set of circumstances which most haven't experienced before, because you know, we haven't seen them for a number of decades. Perhaps, perhaps we can expand on that then, please. Um, I mean, you mentioned you're in a transition period. It's a difficult world to invest in when geopolitics is fragmenting, capital controls are being imposed. You've got inflation for the first time significantly in years, uh, correlations are changing, things like this. So how are you investing through this period and what do you expect the world to look like when we do come out the other side? I'll pass on the second part of your question. I think it's very difficult to predict what the world will look like uh, when we come out on the other side. Um, <clears throat> but let's talk about how we manage money through a transition, a, a potentially volatile transition period. Um, I think the key is to recognise that some of the old heuristics and the mental shortcuts that have worked well for investors in 
recent years may not work so well anymore. And so our response is maybe this is what we always do is we try to stick to some fairly basic and time-honoured, battle-hardened investment principles whilst remaining flexible in how we apply them given the current circumstances. So to take an example, we believe that quality is a very important characteristic when investing. And what we mean by quality is the strength and the durability of a company's franchise. And we think that concept is as important as ever. And so we're still in our due diligence focused on understanding a company's sustainable competitive advantages, the source of their pricing power, for example. But where you find those quality characteristics may change as the world evolves. And so some areas of the equity market that previously were regarded as high quality may lose that um, those characteristics and others which which traditionally or more recently haven't been regarded as quality may evolve towards more um, quality uh, and in terms of basic principles you know we focus on quality and we focus on value um, and so the second core principle within our process is is value in an absolute sense uh, and I think it's very important there just as it was in the early 2000s coming out of, of the technology bubble to, to emphasize that thinking about value in absolute rather than relative terms, whether that's relative to other equities or whether you know, other asset classes such as bonds um, is important. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about the margin of safety in an investment. Um, you know, we have uh, you know, the risk-adjusted return expectations, so we have an explicit downside analysis as part of our due diligence. And what that allows us to do is to assess and debate and challenge ourselves about how vulnerable a company might be as this environment changes. And then I guess two other kind of core principles to to abide by in this kind of environment would be firstly, um, to operate within your circle of competence, to stick to what you know. Now is not the time to be be going off on exciting adventures into more esoteric areas of any financial market that you don't understand so well. And also stay liquid. Um, and so if you recognize that your understanding, your analysis has changed or your expectations need to change, then you can take the appropriate action to, to present your portfolio. And your portfolio itself does look very different to many other global equity funds. Um, why is this? What is it that you do differently to get you to those different outcomes? I think one reason is we try not to be too heroic and we tend to stay away from the extremes. And the reason for that is that we think timing markets is too difficult. Uh, We try to play offense and defense at the same time, rather than forming a view about where markets are going, whether they're going up or down, and then trying to behave aggressively or defensively on the basis of that forecast. Um, And so what that means is that when markets are running hot, as they did for a few years before, um, before this year started, Uh, We tend to stay quite balanced, in some senses quite conservative, whereas I think many other funds will have felt pressure to keep up with a a relentlessly rising market. And in doing so, sacrificed certain important investment disciplines, uh, whether that's in terms of the quality of the companies they invested in or maybe the valuations they were prepared to pay for um, the the most well-known and widely recognized areas of quality and growth, specifically the technology sector. And I guess related to that, and this is more fundamental rather than a comment on current um, positioning, we have our own definitions of concepts like quality and growth and value. And also now we're finding sustainability, which are a bit different from other 
peoples or are different from kind of conventional definitions. And so, for example, we believe you can find quality and growth in sectors like utilities, regulated utilities or healthcare, even some financial companies, uh, maybe not mainstream ones, but, but certainly within that sector. Whereas I think it's been common or become common in recent years to argue that the only place you can find quality and growth um, is in the technology sector. And as a result, it doesn't matter what you pay for those companies. And as a result of that, you've got around a quarter of your portfolio invested in Europe. Um, again, very different to many of the peer group. Um, can you maybe give us an example of a stock from there? Um, sort of perhaps sort of maybe the renewables or the defense space, which um, has been very much in the news of late. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fair observation. <clears throat> These, I mean, the fund is now 10 years old and we've had a long-standing bias towards you know, pan-Europe, so Europe and the UK. Uh, I think the average weight over the last 10 years is around 40%. Um, and that's because typically we focus more on economic exposure, so where a company does its business, than we do on where something is listed. And actually, we find that the, there can be a difference between how companies are perceived based on those two uh, lenses. Uh, and we've often found... You know, high-quality multinational companies or companies with U.S. biases in their in their businesses, which are listed in Europe, have become quite cheap, or have you know, at times in the last ten years been cheap because they're listed in the European in the European Union or the UK, and they're misperceived as European companies. You know, so historically that would include companies like Walters Kluwer, which is a Dutch media company with big U.S. Uh, exposure. Uh, Wolseley, which is now Ferguson, which is a US builders merchant listed in um, London. Experian would be another UK company um, meeting that that definition. And then within the current portfolio, names like uh, CRH, the Irish construction company, uh, infrastructure company with big US exposure, or Sanofi, um, or you know any pharma company uh, would would work. Or uh, you know the energy sector, for example, uh, for example Shell and Gelp are you know primarily exposed to the oil price, which is a global. Um, uh, exposure rather than European um, economic exposure. So I think it's worth emphasising that although in certain sectors, we effectively evaluate each sector on its own merits and there will be certain circumstances where we prefer US exposure. So regulated utilities, for example, we prefer US names, the same is true of healthcare. But when it comes to sectors like energy and defence, we actually prefer the European names in energy because uh, we think there's quite a lot of underappreciated value, particularly in a decarbonizing world with their downstream assets and defense because the likely growth trajectory of European defense budgets from here as a result of uh, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the recognition that, that, that defense is an important thing to invest in uh, has been neglected for a lot longer in Europe than it has in, uh, in the US. Um, so we think the growth prospects for European defense businesses are maybe even stronger than they are um, for European names. But I think the final point, and, and this is almost an acknowledgement of, of others' concerns about Europe, is you know our European exposure is, it is a quarter of the portfolio, but it's a lot lower than it has been uh, at that 40% average uh, for the last 10 years, because we do recognise that Europe faces some quite unique challenges in the current environment, um, specifically and, and uh, including being an energy importer, uh, and maybe the tensions that current circumstances could create within uh, the European Union. Um, so we don't have very much exposure to European economic terms um, or, to be honest, uh, in, in currency terms with regards to the euro. 
And one other thing I've noticed in the portfolios, you still have quite a reasonable holding in cash. Um, is that a call on those concerns? Is it a call on market valuation still? Um, what are you waiting for to, to deploy that money? Yeah, again, a little like Europe. I wouldn't overstate the cash balance now. Um, you know, it's been broadly in the mid-single digits for some time, you know, best part of 12, 18 months. Um, and it's significantly lower than it was during the 2015 to 2020 period when it was fairly consistently in the high teens um, level. I'd say a mid-single digit cash balance is much less of an impediment to our ability to capture a good proportion of market upside if and when markets turn upwards, um, you know, as illustrated by our performance during the recent market rally. Um, now, as we've always said, cash is just an outcome of, of our bottom-up stock-picking uh, work. You know, so how much value we can find in the investable universe of, of high-quality companies on a risk-adjusted basis. Um, you know, we'll, we'll deploy cash when we see opportunities to do so, um, and those opportunities can either come from a share price falling or it can come from you know, fundamentals improving. So over time, as companies reinvest in themselves, that they will their intrinsic value will grow, and so a share price will look more attractive um, than it did maybe one or two years ago. Um, and the beauty of working in large cap liquid equity markets with a concentrated fund, 25 to 40 stocks, is that we can move uh, and deploy quite a lot of cash quite quickly when we see those opportunities. You know, it only takes two names to move 5% of, uh, of cash into the market. Um, and certainly we can either deploy cash into new names or increasing weights in existing positions. Um, you know, so if you take the evolution of the cash balance over the last, let's say, two years, the longer term trajectory is downwards because we've perceived there to be a greater number of opportunities in what we've been calling the forgotten middle. So, you know, good growing high quality companies, typically outside of the technology sector, which were increasingly overlooked by a market obsessed by the extremes during 2020 and 2021. Um and then more recently, obviously, markets have been weak and we've had the opportunity to, to top up a number of existing positions, you know, for example, in the utility sector or GXO uh, logistics, which uh, is a particularly interesting and exciting situation, we believe. Um, now we've talked about uh, sort of lots of industries that you do like. Um, and we've touched on a couple that you're perhaps not so keen on at the moment. Um, particular focus on maybe those technology names. Do you think there'll be a time that you'll be interested again, or do you think there's just so much already in them and they're well away from that forgotten middle and very much at the very conscious top end? Um, do you think there's a time that you'd, you'd be adding to those names into the portfolio? Um, it was not really your sort of area. No, we've always said throughout the period of you know, markets increasingly dominated by well-known household name technology companies, um, then becoming a bigger part of benchmark indices and then appearing to be very uh, expensive, um, that we don't own them purely on valuation grounds. So now that's a selective comment. So software com enterprise software companies are typically very much within our quality universe. You know, recurring revenues, sticky customers, brilliant flywheel of reinvesting R&D to create intellectual property and monetizing that through, uh, through global customer bases. Um, so these are all good companies which are on our watch list of investable um, companies we've been um, put off by valuation we have started to dip our toe into names like um, microsoft and adobe over the course of the year on weakness so we've established smaller uh, position you know, two-ish percent position sizes uh, in those names um, but as ever it's selective so 
as I say, we much prefer enterprise software to consumer exposure. We tend to prefer software and services to hardware. Um, and in particular, we struggle with um, the barriers to entry in the social media space. Um, so we never really paid much attention to Facebook. We still don't. Um, I think the stickiness for consumer-facing businesses like Netflix uh, is not something that we feel we understand well enough. Um, so as with any other sector, we're selective. We do think there are quality names in there. We have a valuation discipline, which over the last five years has meant that we that we haven't been involved in that sector very much. Um, but the first five years of the fund from 2012 to 2016, we had good exposure to a number of software names uh, and we're starting to build that exposure back up. But again, selectively, patiently, um, uh, and we'll wait for valuations to come to us rather than chasing them purely because they're a large component of the index. Well, that's been really interesting, Ben. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Jocelyn Global Opportunities can invest in any company around the globe, but has a strong bias towards larger and medium-sized multinational businesses whose revenues are generated from all over the world. To learn more about the Jocelyn Global Opportunities Fund, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. 